the fourteenth chapter of John's Gospel. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will, ask, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Amen. These seven weeks, of which today begins the second, we're studying what it means to be a communicant Christian, a man or a woman with a place at the communion table of the Lord. And more specifically, what it means to be a communicant member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. There's a substantial overlap, of course, between those two, but not a 100% perfect overlap, simply because we don't live in a world of perfect agreement, even among Christians. When after the ascension of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon the church, the new believer's profession of faith, although it represented a revolutionary sea change of thinking, the believer's profession was essentially very simple. The apostles and evangelists preached, and then they baptized on the new believer's profession that Jesus Christ had lately come in the flesh, and that ultimately he, not Caesar, not anyone else, he is Lord. Twenty centuries of studying and debating what this profession of faith means have resulted in the church as we know it today in the world. There's a substantial agreement among all true Christians on the fundamentals of the Christian faith, and yet there's still room within the family of God for a little brotherly debate on some issues as well. The main things of Scripture are always the plain things. The plain things, the main things. It's plain, as we saw last week, that God has spoken and that what he said and caused to be written is absolutely true. You can trust him. He's given us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments the only infallible rule for faith and living. It further becomes plain as you delve into this infallible rule that merely natural religion, such as the telescope and the microscope teach us, this bare factual knowledge of the universe, valuable as it is, has its limits. It can't carry us all the way down the field to the goal of knowing this living and true God who made and sustains it. Science can't bring us into fellowship with him. It doesn't have that power. It shows us the glory of God, even in this fallen universe, from the galaxies arranged above us, right down to the molecular makeup of every cell within us. The electron microscope is alive, brimming with the glory of God. 
The satellite that from beneath the rings of Saturn photographs the Earth as a distant point of light gives us some small sense of God's greatness. Some sense the psalmist also had. What is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? These scientific tools and methods that we have at our disposal are marvelous. But here's the point. Merely noticing these wondrous things in the natural world doesn't tell us the whole story. The natural sciences can't redeem us. They can't change us. They can't tell us precisely who this God is who made and sustains us. It offers no rational basis for a hope of cleansing and renewal or fellowship with this God. Who is he? Or is it a she? Or is it an it? Is God a force? A person? A principle? We wouldn't know and we couldn't know until we open this book and start reading. Now I come today to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel with the feeling as though I were standing before an ocean of divine revelation and had in my hand only a teaspoon to take from it what I need. All I need to do today is to show you that the one living and true God revealed in the scriptures is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One glorious God maker of all things visible and invisible, living and reigning eternally as three persons of one and the same substance, co-equal in power and glory. This is the one living and true God who made us, who cares for us, who takes thought of us. This is the God of the Bible, the true God. Natural science can't teach us everything we need to know. Human philosophy can't. Logic alone can't. But because God has spoken to reveal himself, we can know. Now there are certain words in Christian theology that don't actually appear on the pages of the Bible, but describe what we find there. Theology itself is one of those words. Rapture is another Trinity is still another. You won't find these particular words in any Bible concordance. But the Trinity, the tri-unity of God, it's there from the first page of Genesis all the way through to the last page of the Revelation. So when Jesus spent his last evening before the cross with his disciples, he could speak with them and did speak with them of his Father and of himself and of the Holy Spirit. He could speak of these three persons, the living and true God, and not be breaking new theological ground with them. After all, graduation day isn't the day you want to be introducing your class to a new subject. If these disciples had been paying attention along the way, first in the synagogues as young boys, and then as his disciples, they'd have been a little less slow to understand at this late hour, at this late date. 
Now, I know our time is limited this morning, so let me briefly outline how I want to approach this. First, let me show to you from the Bible the unity of God. This is fundamental because we're not talking about three gods. Christians aren't like Mormons and so many others, polytheistic. We worship one God only, the living and true God of the Bible. Then, let me show you from the Bible the plurality of persons within the one true God. This is important too because we're not Unitarian as, for instance, all the Muslim world is. Finally, I want to show you from John 14 how the doctrine of the Trinity, one God eternally existing in three persons, is the consolation and comfort of the church. God is one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The verb created, in the Bible's very first word, the Bible's very first verse, is bara. Third person, masculine, singular. It's the second word in the whole Hebrew Bible. Bara. And my point is that subjects and verbs agree in number. One God, not more than one, but singular, created the heavens and the earth. And what's implicit from that very first verse onward is made explicit in the first commandment of Exodus 20. And then its repetition in Deuteronomy 5. And then in the Shema passage of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 and many other places. Here's the foundational confession of God's people ever since the day he ransomed us from slavery in Egypt. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's Israel's creed. That's our creed. Now, have we always lived by this creed? No, Israel over time became a virtual factory of gods and idols. She couldn't get enough of Baal and Moloch and Milcom and Chemosh and Marduk and Nebo and every other pretender that came along. So the Lord declares through all true prophets that fact made most plain perhaps in Isaiah 43. Jehovah says... I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. God is one. He's the first and the last with none in between. Have you ever served on a committee? Can you tell me one solid, worthwhile product that ever came out of committee deliberations? Now let's have a look at this universe. Does the universe look like it was put together by a committee? I look around and I see order, symmetry, 
design, balance, cooperation of all the parts. I see a conservation of energy and matter. I see one mind at work, one wisdom, one power behind it all, because God is one, and beside him there is no other. Now let's return for a moment to Genesis chapter 1. That verb bara, created, third person masculine, singular. The subject of that verb is Elohim. God, which in grammatical form at least, here as early as the third word of the Hebrew Bible, is masculine, plural. And when he confers with himself in verse 26 about making man, he speaks not of making him in my image, but in our image, according to our likeness. And then when he created Adam in his own image, according to his own likeness, was good, was it good that he was tending the garden alone? That aloneness of Adam in the garden was the one thing in all the created universe before the fall that was not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. Man who was created in God's image, who was designed for fellowship, designed for community, was designed for love. Because the art is a reflection of the artist. God enjoyed fellowship within himself from all eternity. So man too, created in God's image, was created for fellowship within himself, within his own kind. One nature, one love, one flesh, but with a holy differentiation. And so we have one God and three persons. How can this be? Well, you're sensible people. How can it be? The story is told that in 5th century Ireland to teach the Trinity to the barbarians, St. Patrick used the analogy of the shamrock. Is it one leaf or three? Or both together? Or today we could say, how many eggs in one dozen? How many persons in one couple? To say there are twelve in one, or two in one, or three in one, isn't an absurdity if you know what it is you're talking about. One god isn't the same as three gods. That would be mathematically wrong, even absurd. One person isn't the same as three persons. But in the Trinity, we have three persons in one God. God the Father sending into the world God the Son. And God the Son, who redemption accomplished, together with the Father, sends the Holy Spirit. 
These three persons are in absolutely perfect agreement as to the purpose of creation and of providence and of redemption and of the restoration and consummation of all things. Perfect agreement. Their respective roles in the unfolding decrees of God differ, but their purpose and their power and their glory are exactly the same. The Father purposing and sending, the Son coming and obeying and dying and redeeming, the Spirit regenerating and applying to the elect of all coming generations the benefits purchased for us at the cross. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Which are words that, if they don't reflect the will of the triune God, they must certainly be regarded as the most arrogant, blasphemous words ever spoken by a man. And that's just how the scribes and Pharisees of his generation thought of them. Who are you, they said, to make yourself God's equal? But of course it's Trinitarian. The Bible's Trinitarian through and through. Christian baptism is baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And how does Paul say goodbye to the Corinthians in his second letter? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. So where's the comfort to be found in the triune God of the Bible? This proper biblical understanding of the living and true God comforts us, first of all, because he being not what human philosophers and theologians would have expected, we know him to be true. Who, after all, could have fabricated such a doctrine as the Holy Trinity? We know him as the God who revealed himself as he really is, not just another mere god of human imagination and wishful thinking. The natural human mind corrupted by sin has this bad habit of fabricating all these static gods that just sit there on their pedestals of one sort or another. Those man-made gods can't see us in our actual situations, they can't hear us when we pray, and they don't care anyway. Those man-made gods consume our wealth as we pay the jeweler to gold plate them for us. And then, when they look the way we want them to look, they just sit there, taking up space, needing to be dusted every so often. And this is true literally if we're talking about statuary and other objects of false worship, but it's just as true metaphorically if we're talking about religious ideas, philosophies, and things immaterial. They take up space in your brain. Those unbiblical ideas about God don't help us because they can't help us. They're nothing more than a reflection of our own 
religious opinions, our own religious ignorance. But this God of the Bible has made himself known, both his person and his work. He's made himself known. Second, this is a comfort to us, not only because it's true, but because we know him to be the God of blessed unity, of blessed agreement in relationships. Certainly he's the God of all power. He's also the God of all cooperation and love. Ontologically equal in substance, power and glory, the three persons of the Godhead, economically, as the theologians say, economically enjoy among themselves a completely voluntary, joyous, spontaneous subordination. The Son to the Father, the Spirit to the Father and to the Son. So from all eternity, this living and true God knows everything there is to know about relationships. And living in relationships and blessing in relationships. Knowing him, experiencing the transformation he offers by grace in the gospel, it has the power to change the course of our relationships as well. Thirdly, this comforts us because within the very heart of this triune God of the Bible, we discover a heavenly Father whose purpose it is to save sinners. It's his purpose to save sinners. There are glorious rooms, mansions in his eternal house that he intends to fill. And fill them he will. By sheer grace he'll fill them. Though it means sending into the world the eternal son of his love. And for one most awful moment of history. Turning away his face from that beloved Son, who becomes at that moment on the cross a curse for us. The Heavenly Father has a purpose of saving sinners. Fourth, this is comforting doctrine because in the triune God we know not only Him who purposed to save, but who actually came to save, not just to observe. In the fullness of time, God the Son arose and left his eternal throne in order to share our humanity. This triune God understands your infirmities and mine. He understands them perfectly for the simple reason that for some 30 years or more, he shared them. He shouldered them. He felt the weight of them. What this means is that the omnipotent judge who's appointed to preside at your trial on the last great day not only knows every specific dark detail concerning your case, as a well-informed judge would, he not only knows all there is to know about you. In fact, this omnipotent judge, clothed now in his eternal robes of divine omniscience, who knows everything there is to know about you, your judge is your brother. He's your brother. 
He's eaten at your table. He's walked your streets. He's felt your sorrows. He's experienced your temptations. Your righteous judge, your brother, understands you. And long before your pending arraignment before him, at the cross he fully satisfied the justice otherwise due to be poured out upon you, Christian. Your penalty? Paid in full. And righteousness doesn't demand a double payment. Your penalty is paid in full. The place he prepared for his elect isn't the dungeon of everlasting death our crimes properly deserve. Because within about 18 hours of his uttering these words of the 14th chapter at the Father's direction, the man Christ Jesus shouldered and discharged the full debt of our sin. Within a few weeks more, he was preparing a place for us in our Father's house. So your place in glory awaits you and mine somewhere right down the hall waiting for me. What courage, what joy, what abounding good cheer this heavenly prospect offers the Christian as we live out the days or years remaining to us here. Pardoned now, right now. And paradise to come. No other God, monolithic, uncaring, fashioned by the mind of men, no other God was ever so willing or so able on your absolute darkest day, the final one, to deliver you out of death and into life. Finally, we take comfort knowing him to be the God who saves in our own experience. In eternity the Father elected a distinct people whose number is known to God alone. In covenant with his eternal Son, he purposed to redeem us by the meritorious obedience and substitutionary death of Christ. And then at the cross, the transaction, the purchase of blood, actually took place. But all that was nearly 2,000 years ago. How could we know it but for the Spirit's mysterious work of the intervening centuries, the intervening millennia? First this Holy Spirit inerrantly inspired and then wondrously preserved and now effectually applies His Word generation after generation to the lost souls of those elect. Now our time is up and I have to take my little teaspoon out of the wide theological ocean whose one shore is in chapter 13 and the other in chapter 17 of this gospel. There is so much here we've left undiscovered and of course the ocean extends well beyond the horizons of these five chapters, beyond the horizons of John's gospel, beyond the horizons of all the gospels. In our study of the Trinity, shouldn't we have considered the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ as the angel of the Lord to Abraham, to Jacob, to Joshua, to Gideon, to Samson, and others? 
shouldn't we spend time with Christ in the Psalms? Shouldn't we consider the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of David and the inspiration of all the prophets? Of course we should. But our time's gone. So I leave you with a final matter of your personal response to all we've seen together. Do you believe in the one living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as revealed in the Scripture? May He give you the grace to answer along with all God's elect, whose eyes, ears, and minds the Spirit opens. With all my heart, I believe.